This is Nick Wright with Managing Editor Zachary Fillingham of geopoliticalmonitor.com. And today we're going to be talking about Ukraine and the Ukrainian elections and the new president of Ukraine. So Zach, tell us, how did a comedian with no political experience win the recent Ukraine presidential election? Okay, well, I think that it is a testament to just how tired Ukrainians are with their political class. Uh, so, so basically, we did a few podcasts covering Ukraine previously, um, and you might want to go back and listen to them. We're talking about the election, talking about trends in the lead up to the election. And I believe that we did mention that there was a real possibility that Zelensky, uh, this comedian, might, might actually win. And the fact was, basically, people are so tired of, of what they view to be a sort of corrupt and uh, detached political elite that they, they voted for the one guy who they recognized because he's a television star. Uh, and the one guy who's just not a part of that elite. Um, and then the result was this massive victory. This is the biggest victory in, in Ukraine's post-independence post, uh, political history. Uh, 75% or so. Basically, Zelensky just hammered Poroshenko. It was a huge victory. We knew going into this election that Poroshenko and Timoshenko were wildly unpopular, but the assumption was that basically one of them would be able to win, uh, basically the one that was hated less, slightly less. But uh, Zelensky was able to put together a campaign that, um, that worked. And part of this campaign was basically him doing what he does best. He's, uh, he's an actor. He's on um, Servant of the People, his television show. And the plot is about a sort of normal teacher who records a, a, a rant on YouTube that goes viral. And this rants about basically how terrible the politicians are, how terrible the oligarchs are. And... Um, through that rant, he becomes president. So this is definitely an instance of life imitating art because now he's president. Uh, so basically, he he fulfilled the first part of that story arc of his television show. And now the question is whether he will fulfill the second part, which is basically bringing some good old fashioned wholesome know how to the uh, highest levels of power and um, getting shit, getting things done. Zach, we've seen a uh, popular, populist resurgence in a number of different countries where uh, an unconventional candidate has ended up winning. Uh, how is this similar or different to other examples of that that we've seen, uh, perhaps the United States being the most notable? Um, I think that, well, okay, so Zelensky was laser focused on the political class and the political class was so unpopular basically we know that there was the Maidan revolution and that like what we were just talking about in um, Sudan uh, when you have a revolution you have this sort of upswell of hope and this upswell of hope that for change right and you have some patience post-revolution because you're like okay well you know um, the new people are going to fix it, make it right, got to give them some time, etc., etc. If we go back to 2014, Poroshenko is swept into power. Poroshenko is, is the Zelensky of, of five years ago. I mean, he's, uh, he's an oligarch, um, but 
He's sort of a political unknown swept into power, and he's going to be the guy that fixes everything wrong with Ukraine, right? And uh, what's wrong with Ukraine and the highest levels of power has to do with corruption and this sort of crony political slash economic class where where powerful economic interests uh, control um, the the government. And, and this, this is the kind of corruption that permeates all the way down to everyday society where it actually affects um, people's ability to, to lead their lives, right? They need to bribe, this sort of thing. So um, Zelensky focused all his power on basically discrediting Poroshenko and the other mainstream political, um, uh, his mainstream political opponents. And it was very effective. Uh, so, so that's what he did. I, you know, obviously there are elements of that in the Trump campaign uh, that we can think back to, draining the swamp. You know, that definitely resonates. But uh, unlike other populist analogs, Zelensky's sort of less focused on... Um, uh, xenophobic elements uh, on othering some sort of group and 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 painting them as the uh, the cause of everything that ails the country. Basically, he had a good enemy right there. He had a good a good um, a good reason for Ukraine's problems. He didn't need to elaborate further than that. Uh, Zelensky actually himself is Jewish, so obviously um, Jewish people have have had <laughs> their own um, difficulties within Ukraine. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, like another similar thing to other populist politicians around the world is that Zelensky didn't offer much of a, a policy program per se. He kind of just continued doing what he does best, which is, uh, performing and, uh, and doing skits and stuff. Um, he, he also, he, he um, he staged a very unconventional campaign insofar that he used social media and talked to the electorate, electorate directly. So that is definitely something that is similar to other populist upsets around the world. We've seen that in Italy. Um, we saw that in Brexit. And to a lesser degree, we saw it in the Trump campaign. Um, so basically, you can, you can, uh, can sideline the conventional gatekeepers in society, whether it's the mainstream media or, you know, the political class, talk to your voters directly make your case to them directly. And in the case of someone like Zelensky, he's he's a likable guy, he's a fresh face, and he's funny, right? So I mean <laughs> that like in that sense he's also similar to Trump. Trump's name recognition and the fact like Trump's bizarre charismatic magnetism, you know, like like that had something to do with Trump's victory, right? Um, it made him palatable to a lot of people. And I think Zelensky also has that just in, in, in overdrive because his campaign was sort of turbocharged by the fact that everybody hates Poroshenko at this point and everybody hated uh, Timoshenko as well, both who posted extremely poor results. So obviously, Zach, there's been a lot of tension between the Ukraine and Russia. Uh, what does the uh, Zelensky presidency mean for Ukraine-Russian relations moving forward? Um, I wouldn't say that it means something like one way or the other. Um, like most aspects of Zelensky's policy program, we don't really know because he wasn't putting forth a platform. Uh, we don't know what he has planned, but we do know some things. 
Uh, we do know that a fresh face, a fresh face offers new opportunities uh, for negotiations and new opportunities for a renewed peace process, um, particularly in the Donbass. Uh, Poroshenko was uh, was reviled by the Putin government. Um, those two administrations just detested each other. So um, all all of Russia's efforts to um, influence the the Ukrainian elections uh, through disinformation, etc. They were all directed towards uns like they were directed towards unseating Poroshenko, not necessarily towards seating Zelensky, right? So I would say Zelen um, like Zelensky is definitely not pro or anti Russia. He seems to somewhat have an open mind on the issue. So there is sort of a window of opportunity there for something new. Um, uh, interestingly, you know, Zelensky is also reflective of the fact that there's just been a broader shift in, in Ukrainian public perceptions towards the West, like towards being pro-West. So all of the all of the candidates were broadly pro-West, broadly pro-EU, broadly pro-NATO. Um, so and Zelensky as well fits into that. And, and, you know, that might have something to do with the fact that 3.8 million pro-Russia voters were cleaved off of the country um, in the Civil War, <laughs> maybe. But um, whatever, what's left of Ukraine is is more approaching a consensus of, of pro-West and what's left uh, of the electorate, you know, now that they, the predominantly pro-Russia East is gone for now, um, it is... Um, increasingly anti-Russia. So, so in that sense, Zelensky's gonna, gonna like even if Zelensky has grand plans for uh, some sort of re rapprochement with with Moscow, he's gonna have to deal with the same, um, the same problems, the same political undercurrents that that Poroshenko did in terms of Ukrainian nationalism. And the desire for large, you know, a large amount of the public to move towards the West. So, could this mean intensification of conflict in the East? Um, so, in terms of the conflict in the East, I think this is something that's really interesting because, um, so basically, nothing much has happened in the East over the last three years. There have been the Minsk II protocols, and we we published an article about this today. Um, kind of refresh the points of, of what Minsk II means. Um, and so basically Minsk II was, a, was a, the latest peace initiative um, agreed to by Ukraine, Russia, Germany, France. It succeeded in turning the conflict from a hot conflict into a kind of tepid conflict where there's still day-to-day -day casualties, but it's nothing compared to what was happening before Minsk II. That would be the success of Minsk, Minsk, Minsk II, um, but that's it, right? So there's a long list of Minsk II uh, conditions that were unimplemented, and they remain unimplemented to this day. They include all of the political considerations, like um, holding local elections in the East under Ukrainian law. That never happens, um, never happened in 2015, the, the closest thing happened in 2018, but it was all Russia, um, like it was Russia directed and not recognized by Ukraine. Um, there's also no constitutional amendments affording 
decentralization of power to the east, and um, and 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 other like basically all of the political content of Minsk two remains unimplemented, and it remains unimplemented in large part because it's politically untenable in in Ukraine. Um, like there's a large consensus within Ukrainian the Ukrainian population that um, does not want to decentralize uh, power to the to the Donbass, does not want to grant autonomy to the Donbass because they view it as basically um, rewarding secession, rewarding this sort of treacherous action, this war, and surrendering in the face of separatism. So that's, you know, that's a problem for Zelensky because... Uh, it, it basically ties his hands. It makes him unable to implement the agreement that Ukraine signed in 2015. And these these uh, uh, these conditions they existed for Poroshenko as well. They made it so that he was he was unable to I- implement the agreement. And in the end, he kind of just said, oh, "You know, screw it. You know, f- army faith language. I'm just going to roll with it." And adopted an extremely nationalist, hardline view. Right. So, like, we're not going to give an inch, sort of thing. Um, so there's that. Um, and then there's another interesting consideration: it's the fact that like you have this growing s- upswell of sentiments within Ukraine where people just want peace, uh, understandably, because they've, they've been suffering this war um, and, and, basic, and, and severe economic conditions for uh, five year, going on five years now. Um, and they want peace at any cost. Like, even if peace means cutting off the, the rebel-occupied territories. And I think that that's, that's an interesting trend to watch looking forward. Um, because there are various there are various considerations when you think about okay so maybe we have a peace agreement that brings Ukraine back together to its uh, post nineteen ninety one borders sans Crimea um, what would that mean for the politics and the economic uh, the economy of Ukraine it's increasingly a um, a difficult proposition. Uh, it's difficult politically because you you all of a sudden you bring 3.8 million people back back into the political mainstream that are sort of predominantly pro-Russian, um, and you bring Ukraine back to its previous equilibrium. That's that's you know half the country is pro-West, half the country is pro-Russia, um, which kind of prevailed and brought us the previous pro-Russian presidents like uh, Yanukovych. I mean, like think of it in 2013. Like Ukraine was, um, you know, the president of Ukraine was opting to potentially join the Eurasian Economic Union. And uh, like that was not like that was a supported. He was supported in that, you know, by a large part of the country, predominantly in the east. So you have this political challenge to reintegrate Donbass. And you also increasingly have an economic challenge as well, because it's it's a, a war torn area that suffered five, uh, five years of war, shelling and, and destruction. And um, like, there's a question of who's going to pay for that. And, you know, Ukraine, the, the state of the Ukrainian economy is not in any, any position to, to jump back into Donbass and, and, and repair it, bring it back to what it 
previously was, especially when you have these ethnic cleavage, cleavages that would be influencing the uh, political dialogue all along the way and the, the, the reconciliation or lack thereof. You know, like just just in, in relative terms, you know, um, I think it was the Ukrainian finance minister, I forget who, but someone pointed out that if Ukraine grew at its current rate, it would take 50 years for the country to reach Poland right now. You know, so I mean, like Ukraine starting from, uh, you know, a disadvantage here and uh, it doesn't have. A lot of money to rebuild Donbass, and even though Donbass, the the cleavage of the Donbass was was a huge economic shock that really destroyed Ukraine's GDP, and uh, Donbass represented a, a large part of its industrial capacity. Uh, but five years from that, from then, Ukraine is starting to like the Ukrainian economy is starting to recover. And the Ukrainian economy is starting to sort of reorient itself in terms of supply and production lines away from the Donbass. And all these connections now sort of bypass the Donbass because it is essentially, for all intents and purposes, a separate country right now. So the longer this current status quo, there are two considerations here. The longer this status quo continues, the harder it's going to be to ever envision Ukraine returning back to its 1991 borders. Again, sans Crimea. So that's a different different situation entirely. And um, this status quo, by like from what we can see right now, this status quo is very very likely to continue, at least in the short term. So, so basically, so Zach, what what national policies then are we likely to see with this government that we may not have otherwise seen? You talked about what uh, the new president is opposed to in the election, but uh, what policies uh, has he been in favor of and will he likely implement? Well, I think that the, the, the primary overriding issue for most Ukrainians is corruption and transparency. So um, and it's also it's I mean, it's the same thing. It really is like going back in time. It's the same thing for Poroshenko when he was first elected. So um, we're now in the hope phase like Sudan. And now we're entering the reality phase, which is Ken Zelensky, even though he's been pretty mum on his promises, he's kept his promises, you know, uh, secret. He hasn't made huge promises on the campaign trail. We don't really know what he expects to do. But obviously, the way he lambasted the corrupt political class, it's presumed that he's going to um, tackle the corruption issue head on. One of the things he has revealed is that he wants to strip um, parliamentary and political, even presidential immunity, right? Which would be a big deal because a lot of politicians in Ukraine they 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 get elected and they use that they use that immunity to sort of engage in in scurrilous acts with impunity because they know they cannot uh, be charged for it, and they use that to sort of run their own rackets. So. Um, that will be an early indication if he can get that passed. Um, and an important consideration here is it's not necessarily the will, because Zelensky might have the will to do these things. He might have the will to, quote unquote, clean up Ukrainian politics, but he also needs to get through the parliament. And um, <clears throat> like it's very possible that the parliament could uh, could uh, kill his anti-corruption drive before it even gets started. 
Uh, we're going to have parliamentary elections later this year, so it will be easier to gauge the potential for his his policy platform at that point because we're going to know what kind of uh, what kind of showing his party has and and whether or not he can cobble together uh, a good coalition. But broadly speaking, the members like certain members of parliament have a lot to lose if their parliamentary immunity is stripped. So he's going to face a lot of pushback on that. Um, presumably, he's going to prioritize it because it is as like I think any anyone looking at this election, the major takeaway is that corruption is what matters most to the people um, and the economy. But they are kind of hand in hand, especially because fixing corruption also enables um, more sort of bailouts and assistance from the West and the IMF. So um, this will definitely be an interesting uh, issue to watch going forward. I think he will prioritize it. Um, and, and another thing is like you had all of these, like you have all these anti-corruption bodies in Ukraine that most, many of which were set up during the Poroshenko administration. However, not a lot of them are, are sort of independent or actually effective. Like not a lot of them are, have teeth. So, and most of the, like most of the biggest scandals that plagued Poroshenko in the lead up to the election, the way that he got to like his absolutely dismal approval numbers mostly has to do with his activities surrounding these, um, anti-corruption bodies. It's basically scandals revealing that even though they were ostensibly independent, they still answered to certain members of the Poroshenko government, so they actually weren't independent. I think what the people of Ukraine want is they want independent anti-corruption bodies that have authority all the way up to the presidency, and there's absolutely no one who's above the law in, in the Ukraine. So um, if we can get there, great. Like, Good luck, Zelensky. Uh, now is the hard part, you know? So. Fascinating. I look forward to uh, following the issue further uh, and reading the new articles coming out on the website, geopoliticalmonitor.com. And to those who are interested in reading about this issue, you can go to the website uh, and read the two articles that we currently have up on Ukraine on the main page, Ukraine Civil War, RIP Minsk II, and Life Imitates Art in Ukraine Elections. So thank you to all our listeners and looking forward to next time. Talk to you then. Thank you.